Welcome to Present Company, the Netflix podcast that brings you dynamic conversations with exceptional people behind your favorite series, films, documentaries, and specials. I'm your host, Krista Smith. For years, I was Vanity Fair's ambassador to Hollywood, interviewing countless actors as well as creatives and authorities across the spectrum. My passion is talent, any form of it. How do you know you have it? How do you cultivate it? How do you protect it? And also, I want to get to the heart of what drives it. On this podcast, I'll be talking to people in Hollywood and far beyond. Thank you for joining me. Today's show is a little different because Present Company headed up north to San Francisco to speak to Demi Moore in front of a sold-out crowd at an event hosted by City Arts and Lectures. As an actress, Demi carved out one of the most extraordinary paths in modern Hollywood, shattering expectations of what a woman could earn, what kind of movie she could open, and how she could present herself in the world. Who can forget her now iconic Vanity Fair cover, Nude and Pregnant, photographed by Annie Leibovitz. With films like St. Elmo's Fire, Ghost, and A Few Good Men, more shot to superstardom, achieving a level of success and celebrity that was further fueled by her high-profile marriage to Bruce Willis, with whom she shares three daughters. Her candid memoir, Inside Out, is now a New York Times bestseller. She opens up about her relationship with her mother, her struggles with addiction, and her two marriages. It's a highly personal and deeply affecting account of an extraordinary life. How about that? Um, I'm Krista Smith, and I am really thrilled to be here in San Francisco, even though I'm a little cold, uh, coming from Los Angeles, but to do this interview with Demi, and this book is fantastic. And I was, so congratulations right there. Thank you, thank you so much. But I was an assistant, it was my first job uh, right out of school, working in that running around getting people coffee, answering phones, because we had actual phones then, and I took a (laughs) typing test. But what is incredible to me to sit here across from you right now is that I lived, I kind of came of age at Vanity Farewell through Demi Moore, basically, because it was that cover, multiple covers, and I actually ended up writing the last time you were on the cover, which I think was was uh, 2009. Nine, maybe? Yeah. With yeah. the Mario Tessino. With Mario Tessino, yeah, okay. right. And when I was reading this book, even though our lives are completely opposite, uh, you know, how we were raised and everything, I felt so, I related to so much in it. It really spoke to me. And I mean, I, there is a part in the book where I, you know, uh, say that this is my story, but I you know, I hope that in some way that it, maybe it might be your story too. So I love hearing you say that. Um, It's really encouraging. Mm -hmm. Well, for, for, how long did it take you to write this? Well, so this was a process that actually started nine years ago. And it was kind of going down a similar but different path. 
Um, and then my whole life exploded, and I couldn't even... Like, I just couldn't wrap myself around opening that door at all, and I put it on the shelf. And then two years ago, HarperCollins came and said, um, you know, we need to either take this off the list or, and move on. And they were incredibly gracious and understanding about what I was going through personally. And I knew that I couldn't miss it. There was something in this, this, this um, opportunity that I had to do it. And I was terrified, terrified to kind of open up that door. Um, but you know, like in life, sometimes there's just something in your knowing. Um, and so I jumped in. So this particular, um, the end result of Inside Out was a two-year process. Mm-hmm. Well, you, it's the bravest way to start a memoir because you basically start it with possibly the darkest hours of your life at that point several years ago. And then you lead us right in. What was your choice in starting with that? Well, first, um, as I was kind of thinking through what part of my story and what is, my, what is the story I want to tell, this question just kept coming like so strong, almost like I felt like I was being yelled at. And that was, how did I get here? Like coming from where I've come from on paper, none of it made sense that I could have had the career and the, done the things I've done, places I've been. And then as my life had exploded and I had done so much work on myself, the question was, how the f- did I get here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and so giving the shape for the book to really go down the exploration of, of answering that question and I, there was just no other way, I think, to, to really set the picture um, except exactly where it was, which was at a point where I felt the universe had pulled every external um, aspect of my identity, like as a wife, as a mother, um, uh, you know, as an actor. Like, I, I felt like it was all stripped from me. And, and I was being forced to find value for myself with nothing. Value with just being. That's incredible. And, and you got through it. I mean, it's, uh, it's just so brave. And I think that it's... Not that it's unexpected, because there's something about you from the outset when I look at it as a movie star. You have this quality that I think people responded to, which is why you became huge and Demi Moore and the highest paid actress (laughs) at the time and just paparazzi fodder and the, you know, upset people were obsessed with you is you have this quality on screen and in person too, and especially in here of being incredibly vulnerable, but yet really strong. And you can see it in those clips and a few good men and in, and ghost and in all, all of it's a through line. And now I understand where that came from by reading this book. Nice. Yeah. (laughs) 
now I get it. I mean, for so much of my life, it's like looking at actors and obviously with, you know, and, and covering that and you, what is that it? You know, what is that thing? And now I, reading that, I'm like, oh, that's what walked in the room and got cast in St. Elmo's Fire or before that, you know, general hospital. I get it why it was you because there's always that question and you felt the whole time like, I don't deserve to be here that feeling of... Definitely. I mean, you know, the, the interesting thing is that, well, one, I really believe that things in life happen for you, not to you. And I had a very challenging childhood. I didn't have a safety net. I had no one um, laying out or guiding me, no one to even make sure I had brushed my teeth. And, um, but I realized that if I had had all of those things, maybe I wouldn't have had the drive and the tenacity um, or the courage or just the kind of pure uh, blind, you know, leap of faith to take the risk to do and what I've done and, and perhaps wouldn't have become who I am. Mm-hmm. And so in that way, I have to really express gratitude for the, my parents. Um, and I've really started to look at, you know, your um, greatest mentors are your tormentors. Mm. Sit with that for a second, right? (laughs) Well, let's talk about your childhood a little bit here. You moved, what, 35 times, and by the time you were 15, basically? I mean, essentially, I was in never less than two schools a year. So I would always start one place, finish somewhere else. Um, Like, on average, that was how it rolled for us. Mm-hmm. And it was that feeling, I mean, as you describe it about when you kind of grew up a little bit of being one step ahead of, of someone chasing you, like whether it was parents lost a job, creditors, or there was always like, there was an anxiousness to the moves. It wasn't... I mean, I think it started out with my dad who was really good at what he did and in layout advertising and working for this um, newspaper conglomerate um, and getting promotions and moving. But, you know, as I got older, I understood that to be doing geographics and... Mm -hmm. You know, it was our baseline normal. Like, you know, loading that U-Haul, you know, nobody can move furniture like I can. (laughs) I mean, I can pack like nobody's business. And, but it was totally normal. Like, that was our normal existence. And it did feel like we were always, like, on the move. But to be woken up, you know... uh, one morning and, you know, told that, okay, we're, we're leaving tomorrow and pack up the whole house was okay. Wow. At what point did you begin to realize that that wasn't the way other people lived? You know, there was like a point when, you know, you, the phone rings and, you know, one of my parents would say, 
okay, don't, don't tell them that it's, you know, uh, we're not here, or uh, it's under this name. And, you know, when you're like the kid trying to manage, and I think there was a point that I hit where I thought, if I have to worry about paying the rent and, you know, survival on that level, then I'm just going to go do it for myself. Mm-hmm. And because the weight of doing it, you know, being the parent to my parent, um, became too much. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had such... It's so hard to imagine as when you're reading it, the kind of childhood that you were put through um, with your... the. Like the ups and downs of your parents' relationships, ups and downs of their um, alcohol, the fighting, the rhythms of that, the unpredictability of it. And then on top of that, you were dealing with two parents who, it, it, it would seem to me, were fighting suicide, basically. They were, both of them, kind of... I mean, I think they had such an interesting dynamic. They truly had like a love-hate relationship, couldn't live with each other, couldn't live Mm -hmm. without. And I don't know if they always brought the best out in each other. Um, And I think, you know, it was a time that they were living in that didn't really have a language for depression, Mm -hmm. for, um, as, you know, my mother was then diagnosed much later as bipolar, but that didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And I think they didn't have the, they didn't have the tools, and those were the kind of things that just were kind of swept away. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, when people talk about the, you know, the elephant in the living room, like where, you know, you just didn't talk about it, and you moved on. Um, And there was just, a lot of that being just what it is. Mm-hmm. You just accept it. It's, it's interesting we think now we kind of take it for granted, even though I still feel like we're really behind in terms of dealing with mental health. But back then, no one was talking about it. I mean, there was a stick. You either were in a mental institution or you didn't talk about it. Yeah, and the, you know, the, I think there was so much shame attached mm. to mental illness. Um, that it just couldn't be looked at. It couldn't be Mm -hmm. brought out in the open. Um, And I don't know what, you know, my father, who did kill himself, um, and I do think he did what he thought was the best thing for everyone. I don't think it was his only option, but I think that he was so disappointed and felt like such a failure. I think he thought this will, you know, give money to my brother. It -hmm. would, you know, and then he wouldn't be a burden. Mm -hmm. And Morgan, your brother's younger, right? Five years younger? He's five years younger. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and... And, and a very masculine point of view as well, too. Like, I failed, and this is my, how I will take care of my family, more so in death. And, and again, you know, 
It was really important to me to make sure in the book it was really clear that I don't see myself as a victim mm -hmm. and that I have no blame for anyone. Even, you know, uh, those who I feel have, um, or what you could say is like have wronged me or, you know, have hurt me, certainly. Um, I really embrace that, you know, I, and take responsibility for everything that's occurred in my life. Um, and I think in the same with my parents, you know, mm -hmm. like they, when I went to take care of my mother um, after having been estranged from her um, when she was dying, um, I recognized, you know, that she, there was like a moment when she passed and I realized that everything that was hers was hers mm -hmm. and everything that was mine was mine. And any time that I had ever been unkind or um, hurtful, even if it was justified, it didn't matter because it was still sitting on me as my action mm -hmm. and reflecting what kind of person did I want to be. One of the things that I thought was really profound, it was really simple, but when you said I've been, you know, I've had a lot of good luck and I've had a lot of bad luck. And I'm, I'm grateful for all of it. And one of the things that moved me so much was all the horrible things that you endured as a kid that you would never want any child to endure. When your mother was sick, you didn't hesitate to go back. Mm -hmm. And you cared for her, and it was a very, you know, she's dying of cancer. It's a very ugly, painful long death and you were there for it and you were in the midst of you, you, your family, you and Bruce were still together, you had three kids and you really made that your life and I want to talk about how did you forgive her and surrender to that? In that moment what I recognized was kind of the, the innocence of her soul and I realized that she didn't come in to this life wanting to hurt me, wanting to disappoint me, to not be a good mother. I realized that she came in like we all do, wanting to be loved, to feel like she belonged, that she mattered. And somewhere along the way, she had taken on some misunderstandings about herself and through some traumatic events that she was never able, able to really overcome. And that, in turn, affected her ability to really be present for me. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, forgiveness is a process. And what I ultimately realized is that it's about forgiving yourself. And if I couldn't forgive myself, then it would be impossible to forgive anyone else. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I had a lot of like, amazing um, moments of healing that in this process. 
Like when I was ed- like down to the end, you know, wire editing the book, there was a moment where I realized that when I had kind of cut my mother off, I decided who she was in that moment. Mm-hmm. And, and in that moment when I decided, pushed her kind of away, um, she couldn't, I realized she couldn't have ever become anything else because I had made that decision and had created a limitation. And in a way, I, I, I felt like I had um, lost my compassion mm-hmm. and my humanity. And it's, I felt tremendous, I felt so sad as I was like looking at this, that I, did I like take away an opportunity for her to rise up? And what really got me is that how could I expect my children to have compassion for me mm-hmm. if I can't have it for my mother, regardless of what um, she's done or, or not done? Mm-hmm. But it was equally an opportunity for some incredible healing and, f- and some compassionate self-forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Power. I'm, I'm really happy that you were able to do that, and I'm happy for her. I mean, and you, when in the book you write about it beautifully, and it's it's really moving, and it's got to be so hard to do. And I commend you for doing that. Um, all right, let's talk about some good luck that Demi had because that's pretty <laughs> spectacular too. I mean, you were from the onlooker shot out of a cannon. You were basically 18, already working, that husky voice. I remember watching you on General Hospital, that mane of hair, Jackie Templeton, right, wasn't it? Yep, yeah, and you were it. a journalist. You were everything I, <laughs> I wanted am. to be. It was, it, and it was all that voice. That voice had wisdom to it. It felt like it knew something we didn't. It had a secret, you know. Uh, and that was pretty incredible. You hear a lot, a lot of actors come, they struggle, they, you know, it's years, they don't break, you know, or they get little breaks and then it, they go back down. But that was like a big you know, it moment. Was, it was major. And it, I, I got cast in the role a month before my 19th birthday. God, amazing. And I don't know how, where I would have, like, gotten this kind of false bravado or confidence, but I never saw it as like, this is where I'm going to, you know, settle. Like, Mm -hmm. it was like, okay, this is great. Now what's next? Right. Like, I was ready to, like, move. Right. So funny, isn't it? (laughs) You're like, next, 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 next. Okay, got this. What's next? Right. It's like part of... Part, you're exactly right. Like, part of how you grew up is what propelled you into superstardom. It's that mo- just moving forward, fearlessness. Well, the bottom line is I didn't have anything, so mm-hmm. I didn't have anything to lose. Right. I guess that's it, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's the secret recipe. But it's true. It's, it's when, you, when you don't care, when you're not worried about it, when you're not five steps ahead, when you're totally present in the moment, that must come across, especially to a casting director and just someone that can make that change happen for you. I mean, it's all, I mean, I don't know 
what the other side would have looked, yeah. like what it might have been, because I just was like inside my... See, the irony is that I was inside myself, and coming from where I'd come from, the feeling was always that um, I questioned that it was okay that I was even born. Is it mm -hmm. okay that I'm, you know, and so to make sure that I was um, making up for the fact that I might be a mistake, um, that I was always trying to like prove that it's okay. Let me like keep trying, and I and I know I need to get better. And I I like that hyper vigilance of like go 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 was driving, and I didn't want to slow down because I thought if I I did, then it was going to just all be over. Mm -hmm. Well, it's and, like and maybe I don't know. Maybe that conveyed something that was quite the opposite of mm -hmm. what I was experiencing inside myself. Well, it's like that infamous Joel Schumacher story who was casting St. Elmo's Fire. Uh, that you were just like, he saw you just running down the hall and he was like, who's that? And he sent his assistant out to chase you down. And you're like, what? Who? Are you talking to me? Like, basically. And that was really a game changer, I think, was the St. Elmo's Fire for Definitely. multiple For multiple reasons. reasons. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, I don't want to give away everything that's in the book, but this is a great story about how at that time you're a normal 19, 20-year-old, right? 22, 21. Uh, like, um, I, it, was, was it, it was before my 22nd birthday. Right. So mm -hmm. you're living your life, you've had success with General Hospital, you're partying, everybody else is too, it's what's happening, it's the 80s, it's LA, giant shoulder pads, bright colors, right? It's all happening. Uh, and he said to you, like... Yeah, so ironically, I, he, I, I wasn't drinking then, mm -hmm. but we were in the wardrobe fitting for St. Elmo's and he said in a way that was really embarrassing and kind of humiliated me in front mm -hmm. of everyone. And he said, if I hear of you um, even having one beer, you're fired. And um, I didn't quite know. I was, I was so embarrassed. I was mm -hmm. so mortified. But he gave me, and I just actually, I sent him a message day before yesterday, and I've said it to him over the years, because... He gave me an incredibly profound gift, um, which is when you know we were in pre-production for the for the movie, and I I didn't have box office of any value. I didn't have the kind of weight that that a studio or a director would have put themselves on the line mm -hmm. for for me, and uh, and then the studio executive also who said. Um, you know, you need to show up at this place. Um, unless you're dying, you better show up. And I was like, okay, okay, okay. And I walked in, and it said, Alcohol Rehabilitation Center. And I thought, no, no, you see, that's, that's my mother. That's right. not me. I, 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 I don't belong here. And I met with the, you know, the administration, the head of the program, and... Um, she said, I'd really like to put you in a bed today. And I said, no, no, I, I'm starting a movie in 15 days. And um, she said, well, what's more important, the movie or your life? And I said, without hesitation, the movie. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> like, no joke. Yeah. Like there, and, and it was the truth. 
because I didn't have value for myself. And if Joel Schumacher had not shown up with uh, Ned Tan and one of the other, and, or two of the producers, um, and he really stuck his neck out because the program said they would, they would let me start the film in 15 days if they were willing to pay to have a counselor with me 24-7. And I don't know if I would have been able to get sober if I had to do it for myself, mm-hmm. because I, I didn't have that value. I, I mean, this was everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I am still so grateful to this day that he opened up this this possibility for me because it opened up the window so that I actually could start to have some appreciation and value for myself. Mm-hmm. And it should be said, too, this was alcoholics. and This was all felt very new, too. It wasn't something... Now you hear about people going to rehab a lot more often than you did then. I mean, it was not regular at all. No. It was a very unique situation. It was definitely, I mean, it was definitely brand new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think it was like Betty Ford had opened a couple of years exactly. earlier, but that was it. Um, and for him, that's such a good Hollywood story, because yeah. we always hear so many horrible Hollywood stories, and that's a really good one where, you know, men taking care of, of someone that needed it. And you also were playing a cokehead in the movie. Yeah, the irony <laughs> wasn't lost on me. Yeah. <laughs> But then you meet Bruce, you meet your, you know, father of your children, right? And that was another, you were met, married, pregnant within four months. Yes. And you were still basically... Clearly no dating. Yeah. (laughs) And you were a child. I mean, you were a child bride, it feels Um, like. I, 25. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah, 25, I think. Still feels really young. God, for me, no. I just felt like yeah. I felt like I had been responsible and, a, and an adult right. for so long that it, it didn't feel young. I mean, it didn't feel old, but I didn't feel... Yeah. felt right. I certainly didn't feel like a kid at all. Um, and in truth, I wasn't really so, like, gung-ho about getting married. Um, I really connected with wanting to have a family. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, was what really bonded us. Mm-hmm. And he was, I mean, I love how you describe that whirlwind and obviously Bruce, you know, from moonlighting mm-hmm. and he was making his big, you know, transition and, and you were... Perhaps he was more well-known, actually, because he was on television, right? Everyone had seen him on television, maybe. But you were kind of... I think it was kind of like... It was... We kind of just had different... Right. You know, he was just crossing over into film. Um, He was just about... Right right when we first started, you know, um, going out, (laughs) Um, he did Die Hard. Mm-hmm. So oh, right. that, and as soon as they had a hiatus, um, and I had done about last night and St. Elmo's Fire, mm-hmm. had just finished Seventh Sign, mm-hmm. so it was kind of 
equal but different. Mm-hmm. Well, it was an explosion when you guys got together at any rate. I mean, it really created with, which, what I think in terms of pop culture we live with now. The Benefer, the all the stop uh, <laughs> of star couples. It was Bruce and Demi, Bruce and Demi, Bruce and Demi. Even before Tom and Nicole, Tom mm. and Nicole, because you guys were equals coming at it, mm. and it was this explosion of paparazzi and tabloid, and people were fascinated, almost like a Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor. But we hadn't had anybody like that. It'd been such a gap between them and you guys mm. that that kind of pressure to live under has got to be insane and no one else is living under it 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 was unique to you Mm. as well which i found was interesting and then we did the vanity fair cover Mm -hmm. (laughs) which i'm curious to hear as the fact that you were there and what what, oh it's so delicious reading about it in your book i was like oh that's where that because i have my own memories from that experience but i what i do know is that i can never articulate accurately the insanity that happened at Vanity Fair offices after that cover came out. I mean, it's so interesting, like the idea that um, seeing a pregnant woman's body was being considered pornographic. Beyond pornographic. It I mean, had to, it went up to the pulp, the, the publishers, and, and keep in mind, I was a you know, I was a nobody. I wasn't, but I was observant. The offices were small and I absorbed everything. I was a sponge and I was there seeing how Tina Brown made that decision to say, I'm going to do this, how her and Annie Leibowitz talked about it. And the origin of it was, again, kind of a happy accident because I remember there was something wrong with the first shoot and you, you t- articulated yeah, the, a little the, bit of that. The first shoot they did when I was newly pregnant, but I happened to be blonde, mm-hmm. and they didn't like the pictures. And mm-hmm. so um, it looked like it wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked when they came back, first of all, well, and I was, yeah. Then this is where I come okay. in. So <laughs> this is what I remember, sitting in the office and looking, and there was a picture of you in the New York Times, I think, um, of your just a face, and you were pregnant, very pregnant, and it was a fa- It was so beautiful, and I remember it from. Of course, in my id, I was like, "Look how beautiful she is." We could still shoot her, right? Because look, you know, photographer, look at that. And for whatever reason, that was the decision. And Annie was going to photograph you, and it was going to be more like a beautiful headshot, kind mm-hmm. of. And when she, that's what the anticipation was. And she came back with these pictures um, that are now infamous. And that decision to run which one, it, was, it did not come easily. I mean, Tina Brown really was, you know, she had to be very brave and strong and say, this is what I'm running. Well, what's interesting on the other side is, you know, I met Annie when I got together with Bruce and, you know, she photographed our wedding. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there was something that Bruce was doing for Vanity Fair. Mm-hmm. But then she had, you know, whenever we had a shoot for something and she was the photographer, we would always do little, like, family installments. And so mm-hmm. she was kind of essentially chronicling our, you know, the growth of our family. And she had gone, um, or she had, had gone down to Paducah, Kentucky, 
which is where uh, rumor was born, um, to photograph me pregnant and nude for just me. Oh, for rumor. Okay. So oh, I that was know that. Okay. That was the. So this was just like. So when they came back around to doing the the shoot um, when I was big, big pregnant with Scout, um, I first was saying to Annie, you know, I don't. I, I, I want this to be reflective of how I feel. Like, I'm, I, I, you know, I was probably um, the first time that I wasn't self-conscious about my body. I felt really free, and I loved being pregnant, and I felt, you know, I, I, I felt sexy, and there mm-hmm. was a sensuality. And I think what was pushing me was this idea that I'd never understood is why we celebrate when a woman, when they find out you're pregnant, Mm -hmm. they celebrate when the child is born, but in the in-between, you're supposed to pretend you've never had sex. Yeah. (laughs) You know, with the Peter Pan collars and that that whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Totally true. Totally true. I think I had this seed planted from my grandmother of a story she told me about going to church when she was a teenager and hearing whispers in the church of people saying about a pregnant woman who was there saying, doesn't she think it's about time she stays home? And I thought, wow, what, what is wrong with mm-hmm. that? Why are, that we're so uptight about the body, about sex, about something that's so natural and should be celebrated. I certainly didn't think it was going to be as big of a hoop-de-doo mm-hmm. as it was. <laughs> I mean, I have to say Tina Brown was um, a bit of a mastermind. I don't know where it came mm-hmm. from to have the, you know, the, what, the brown oh, paper cover. I, that think white, it, you know, the, I think it came from necessity because, as I recall, and this is my memory again, Grocery stores wouldn't show it in the stands. That's what I don't They get. wouldn't put it on a newsstand. So we had to shrink wrap it, which meant we had to put brown around it and then actual and just plastic. my head, right? Just my head was sticking yeah, out. Yeah, your head was sticking out. And then it was in plastic because then you couldn't like slip it out and read it. So it was put in I plastic. Mean- <laughs> the amount to say that it is possibly the most famous magazine cover, I don't think is an understatement. And I think it put certainly... Tina Brown and Vanity Fair at the front of this kind of pop culture movement, and it you became a feminist icon with this cover, and it spawned so many other covers now. I mean, it's been done and repeated too many to count. But what was so interesting... And I love each and every yeah, one of them. It I, did, and then suddenly everyone felt free to do it. But at the time, the amount of mail we got... And I worked for Jane Sarkin, who was the features editor, who was the person that did covers. And they, the phone calls, the letters... I remember someone actually sent physically a boombox. Remember those boombox? <laughs> like a, to, to our office with a tape in it that said, play me, and you push the button, and it was a guy that did a whole country song about Demi Moore on the cover of Vanity Fair, like a whole thing. (laughs) And people were canceling subscriptions, people were thrilled. I mean, it created such an enormous moment 
in our culture and where we were, obviously there's no phones, there's no Instagram, we're not at that point in our life yet, that it was like a shot heard around the world. And to think that that, what you were doing, and when I look at it from the outside, like you just, why not, it was beautiful, but that in itself takes such bravery. You know, I was just trying to honestly reflect how I felt. Mm-hmm. And, and to speak up for something that was a long overdue, um, you know, veil being lifted of a shaming that has been, you know, that had been placed on women. Um, and again, it's, I definitely didn't, like, set out to do something that was, you know, a big statement. Um, but that said, I... I also felt the injustice that was existing. And, and I think in some ways, you know, again, I'm going to go back to what's interesting in the book and answering that question for myself is looking at how certain pieces informed other pieces. Mm-hmm. And there were some moments of sexual abuse that, like, left me with tremendous shame. And I think any time there was something that was being brought forward that held shame, I think it was a way of addressing it without having to address what was really going on with my shame against myself. And you do. You write, you write very shockingly and honestly about an incident that happened to you when, when you were 15. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you talk about not knowing, not being able to define it as rape. Mm. And I'm very curious, at what point as a woman were you able to have the words to articulate that as rape? Was it only until you were writing? It was, uh, it was before that, I, I, but it, I would say maybe 12 years ago was the first time I... Um, looked at it. And for those who haven't read the book, I'll give you a little context, which is that I was, I came home from school one day to uh, find a friend of my mother's uh, uh, that I also knew um, in our apartment. um, And I was trapped by him. And um, he was in his 50s and I was 15. And, um, and then a week after this incident where he um, trapped me in the apartment, um, he said, how does it feel to be whored by your mother for $500? And I don't think I could answer that question. Like, I couldn't even wrap myself around but how did it feel? It felt like I was orphaned and that I had to start running and I moved mm-hmm. out two days later. And it forever changed how I looked and held myself because I literally up until 12 years ago, which was the first time I, I ever spoke about it to anybody, um, I just thought it was my fault that I somehow had caused it and, 
Um, and I just pushed it behind me and just keep moving forward. Just keep moving forward. Don't, don't stop running. And maybe that'll just disappear or just never need to be brought up again. But that's just never going to be the case. Because mm -hmm. it'll come and get you until you deal with it. Mm -hmm. And I'm, in fact, I, I am, I'm grateful that I have because... And it's funny, I was thinking actually um, yesterday that I still sometimes have a hard time looking at it any other way, but that it was my fault. Um, it's gotten better, and it's not that I don't logically understand that, mm -hmm. but on an emotional level, there's some piece that feels like I should have known better, mm -hmm. which is ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. <laughs> but I, I understand, I think everybody can understand that feeling mm -hmm. because... It's a learned feeling, uh, and especially in our culture, it's a learned feeling that it's your fault. It's something you did wrong that made the situation happen, and if you would have done X or Y, this wouldn't have happened, and, you know, we could go on and on and on. And I think, if, you know, when, when you read the book, um, you, you know, I think that that misunderstanding that I held about what... Um, was expected of me um, by men and that was something that played out into clearly my sense of self and value that it, mm -hmm. you know, affected, you know, the things that are interesting for me in, in learning more about myself is that we think we have free will, but in a certain way when I started to unpack all of these things traumas in these things in my life, I realized that it's almost like there was no other way I would have responded to certain things because of these events that were not digested, that I'd never broken down, chewed on, and really digested so that I could move on. Mm -hmm. Subconsciously, I feel some of that was being played out in your career choices too. It's interesting. I only, when I read the book, I was going back in, in time and thinking about G.I. Jane, like what you did, like the toughness, like proving to yourself, proving that you could do it, shaving your head. I mean, it's just hard to explain now how giant that moment, a woman in the military, woman doing combat, biggest, most beautiful movie star with signature long dark hair. You'd cut it for ghosts. That was shocking. You know, we all wanted that haircut. And then you shaved your head for a role and you transformed your body uh, to play this, you know, superhuman female. You know, when we were doing it, as it was on screen, uh, it was also in real life, which is it was the only thing separating me at a certain point. And, you know, the process and the making that movie, mm -hmm. it was like me and 40 guys. Yeah. From when we first started the training, you know, and I 
had massive blisters on my feet, and our master chief said, you know, you, you don't have to do everything. And I thought, if I don't do everything, if I, like, sit back now, I'll never have that respect to be able, you know, to really stand as a leader in that. But how you are in one thing is how you are in all things. And that's very interesting because as an actress, you go 150%. In this book, you go 150% in your spirituality and your self-discovery. Like you, it's all consistent. I mean, if you're going to do something, I, you can't do it halfway. Otherwise, what's the point? Like if you're going to step in and do something, um, like a role like G.I. Jane, mm-hmm. like especially because then you miss the gift. You miss mm-hmm. the opportunity of what you can gain from it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got so many interesting, you know, insights into how men approach things to how women approach things. Like when I had no hair, all of a sudden I had nothing to kind of hide behind. Mm-hmm. And I realized how men really move towards things very direct. They don't apologize. We're kind of a little like, mm-hmm. you know. And I thought that's such an, um, like there was something so profound in recognizing that. And granted, when I finished the movie and I had this big body and no hair and no place to go, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I realized, you know, I had, you know, touched on this incredible strength, but I didn't want to wear it. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't want to... I wanted to, like, pull all of that as something inside and not... uh, I don't know. Believe me, I had pants I couldn't get over my thighs by the time no, I No, you were that doing movie. all of that stuff. I mean, the one-armed push-ups I still remember, and the and you did all of it. You transformed, and a lot of those other actors were like, "Yeah, I'm going to let the movie magic step in here. <laughs> I want to maybe sit to the side and let someone stunt double do it." Uh, but also at this time, it's very port- important to talk about, and you still do this. Actually, this mm. is still very much a part of your life. But you were making, now and then, discussing female, you know, a movie about women's relationships and how they change over time, the disappointment and the jealousy and the, um, the love that, that binds women together. You did If These Walls Could Talk, mm. dealing with abortion, dealing with infertility. I mean, these are huge female issues. And you were, produced, you were behind mm-hmm. the camera and as well as in front of the camera, pushing the envelope, always pushing it. And... I think in, in reading um, Inside Out, realizing that through all of this um, strong feminist point of view, you were also suffering from your own objectification of yourself by yourself. Mm. And those, are those two parallel lanes going in the same direction at the same time is really interesting, and it just shows the, the complexity of what it is to be female. And there was also a time where perfection was the ideal. You know, it was like pre-grunge when the, you know, the counter was to be imperfect. It was that, you know, that was, I, I was still on that, you know, kind of that 80s pursuit of perfection where 
you, you better not stop that, you know, and I think the pressure that I put on myself and the value, it was like, if I could, if I was just, you know, thinner, then I would be more accepted. And yeah, interesting to say, like, that I was objectifying myself. And at the same time, you know, the roles that I was energetically pulling in towards me were all things to give me an opportunity to work through some of my own mm-hmm. issues, in particular with my, my body, but not, not just my body. I think, you know, in the same way I was looking at these roles that were of, of, of women, like, overcoming certain limitations and obstacles and pushing the envelope, mm-hmm. um, I think I was equally living that in my own life and trying to carve out a, I guess, just a new path, a new place. What's your daughter's reaction to the book? You know, there's a, first of all, they've been extremely supportive and expressed so much love and pride. Um, Tallulah, my youngest daughter, was speaking at a a little gathering for the book uh, uh, on Monday and she said, um, I met my mother through the book. And, you know, there's things in there that it's not that I wanted to keep it from them or, like, hide anything. It's just stuff that you don't necessarily, well, when they're younger, want to bring forward. Mm-hmm. It's, like, would be either too complicated or inappropriate. And, and then there's some stuff that you just don't think about. And, and then at the end of the book, there's also some things that are reflective of a painful time in my life, but also of theirs. Mm-hmm. And um, they had some sensitivities in the book, f- feeling like perhaps they were not going to be looked at as, um, uh, or they, they would be judged um, right. uh, for choosing not to speak to me for such a long period. And, um, and you know, it brought us a greater opportunity to even heal on a deeper level with some of the stuff that was, had been happening. But in doing this, it's like remembering what's my story and what's someone else's. And in my acknowledgments, I took the time to, you know, um, express that, you know, in, in telling my story, that I didn't necessarily create the context of what their pain was or the choices of why they were making their choices, you know, and in a way that's not for me to tell. But even with their momentary, and these are rumors words, that it was her ego having a momentary, like, knee-jerk reaction when she stepped back to look at it as my experience, my truth, and telling it from what I was walking through, and that that didn't negate any of their experience. Because, you know, there's no one truth. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, we all have perception and, and different experience, and, and there's room for all of it. Um, but in the end, um, they've, they've been so loving and... And my hope was that in reading it and, and in understanding me that they would 
um, find a greater love and acceptance of themselves. Um, and I'll add, um, I was getting ready to do Jimmy Fallon uh, live the other night, mm-hmm. and I was in my little, the dressing room, and my phone rang, and it was Bruce. Bruce Willis. Um, And, you know, not everything in the book is, you know, all, it's not all, like, great. It's not horrible, and nor is he, like, like, do I feel he's a horrible person in there. Mm -hmm. But there, I was prepared for there maybe to be some sensitivities. And he called, and he got very emotional, and he said, I'm so proud of you. And I just almost, like it almost, like I, I too then became very emotional and I'm not a crier. <laughs> and like the purity of his love and acceptance, the space that he could hold for me um, to be walking out and that encouragement, um, you know, I just, it's just really meant so much, so much to me. I really have to say the book is great. It's a fast read. You get right into it. You don't want to stop once you start. Um, and congratulations. It's Thank great. You. There's so much in there. And you're right. You, do, you will see things about yourself, even though it's your story. My hope was that if the, even one person was able to find a piece of themselves that gave them a little bit of comfort to know, you know, that they're not alone. I mean, I do feel a bit like I'm a phoenix or a cat with a, quite a few lives. And the truth is we can't do it alone. Well, thank you for it. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me. Inside Out is available in bookstores now. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you've been listening. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. Join me next time for more meaningful conversations here at Present Company.